And uh, let's just pray as we uh, approach God's words. Lord God, we uh, thank you for this uh, story in Genesis of Abraham and Lot. And we thank you for all that it can teach us about our own walks uh, with you. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us open hearts and minds to hear your voice this morning. Amen. So if you'd like to turn back to Genesis and chapter 13 on page 14, I think it is. Yeah, page 14 of the Bibles. It's been a strange experience being back in Norwich again for the last few years after 20 years of being away um, in other places. Uh, and um, I didn't really uh, keep in contact with my school friends here in Norwich when I was growing up. Um, nevertheless, I've been quite surprised in two and a half years of being here that I haven't come across more old school friends than I actually have. I guess the uh, 24 of us who actually made it into the opposite for Earlham High School um, have been scattered to the four corners of the earth. However, I have met two people uh, that I knew from that time, and both of them were easily recognisable. They hadn't changed that much, none of, uh, despite the years being added on and, and all of us accumulating children in the meantime. And it was, um, and it was really good to, to meet the first person I met, the first friend, and we had some good conversations whilst Alex was playing football at uh, Cringleford Football Club. But fundamentally, the only tie that we had were those couple of years in sixth form together and the fact that I almost killed her in a car accident when I was 17, but that's another story. And, uh, and we both now have sons who like football. In 1986, when we left to go to university, our lives took different turns. We headed off in different directions. And after, despite having spent a lot of time together in those two years, our lives had simply separated and now we have very little in common, really. In contrast, uh, another friend I met, Matthew, I, since I knew him at school, he's become a Christian, and he's really active in his local church. And he and his family came around to lunch one day, and we had a really great time talking about our new lives, what we were doing, and how we were putting our faith into practice, not only in church, but also in our daily work lives as well. And in today's passage in Genesis 13, we see... Um, how two people chose very different paths and grew apart. They separated and ended up having very little in common, basically because they had very different perspectives on God. Different perspectives on God. So one chose the path of faith, and the other chose what I'd call the path of compromise. And those are the two sections of the talk today, the path of faith and the path of compromise. So let's have a look, uh, closer look at Abraham. Uh, I'm going to call him Abraham because I get confused when I have to call him Abraham. So he'll be Abraham for the rest of the talk. And Lot in Genesis 13. Essentially, Abraham and Lot had a lot in common. Abraham was Lot's uncle. Lot had become an orphan when his father Haran had died, and Abraham and Lot must have been quite close because Abraham effectively adopted Lot into his family. He had almost become the heir that Abraham never had because Sarai couldn't have children. That's why uh, when they left the Ur of Chaldeans, uh, uh, Lot went with Abraham. And when Abraham's father died and they left the city of Haran, uh, Lot also went with them, and he followed them into Canaan, 
and later Egypt. You see, they'd been on all those travels together. They'd survived the danger of Egypt together, that we saw last week, and they'd grown rich together. You would have thought that all of those experiences would have made an even firmer bond between them. But it wasn't like that. As we shall see, their lives were forever linked, and yet they drifted apart because they didn't share the same perspective on God. You see, Abraham knew that he'd been chosen by God. He knew that God was going to use him to bless the whole world. And when God told him to leave Ur, the Chaldeans, where he was living, he got up and he went, despite not knowing where he was going to go. He went by faith, just obeying God, because he knew that God was good and would give him good things. Lot, on the other hand, apparently just tagged along with Abraham, either because he had nothing better to do or because he thought he was on to a good thing. Perhaps they used to say in his family, uh, you just uh, stick close to Uncle Abraham. He always knows what's best. He always falls on his feet. Effectively, Lot didn't walk in faith. He walked by sight, what he could see. If he saw a good thing coming, he wanted to be in on it. But note this. Lot was not an evil person. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, you can look it up later, Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man. He was a God-fearer, a believer, somebody who saw himself as trying to do the right thing and to follow God. He was essentially a good man. So this story is not a tale about the believer, on the one hand, and the non-believer, or the Christian and the non-Christian, if you like. This is a story about two believers who took very different paths in their lives. So this story teaches that there are two ways of living the Christian life. And all of us here are walking either one way or the other. All of us have to decide whether we're going to take the path of faith or the path of compromise throughout our Christian lives. And of course, in many ways, all of us here have probably walked both of those paths at different times in our lives. So sometimes, perhaps as, as young Christians or idealistic students, we've walked that path of faith, we've dreamt our dreams, uh, we've fervently prayed to change the world. And at other times, and especially I notice as we get older and go through middle age, those, those dreams appear to evaporate. And we're left with, at best, a path of compromise because of some of the decisions that we've made at various points along the way in our lives. Sometimes it doesn't, have, it doesn't have to be that way, but sometimes that's how it feels. Sometimes we feel defeated before we even set out along uh, life's, uh, life's paths. Perhaps you've struggled with uh, sexual temptation or, or with anger and resentment, and your dreams, therefore, have become vain hopes. We've all been there. You don't even count yourself worthy of approaching God, let alone being used by God because you can't even conquer your own sin. You adopt a kind of worm theology. Oh Lord, I'm just a worm before you. Which on one level is, is, is appropriate humility, but on another level is just completely debilitating sometimes to our Christian lives. At other times we can sail along that path of faith easily enough until there's a big decision to be made. So you've been offered a job that pays more money, but it takes you away from family and friends and the church where you feel supported and where you can serve God. What do you do? Or perhaps you've met someone. You get on really well as friends, even though they're not a Christian. 
but now they've asked you out. What are you going to do? You see, these are the decision points which really reveal whether we're walking by path in the path of faith or the path of compromise. So let's uh, first have a look at Abraham and see how he walked the path of faith. Now Abraham, of course, is the man of faith. He is the man of faith. In Hebrews and Romans, he's portrayed as some kind of hero of the faith. Mainly because, as we saw last week, and we just said, when God said, get up and go and bless, he got up and went and he blessed. Even though he didn't know where he was going. And it was a long time, as I said last week, before he saw any of those promises fulfilled. Some of those he never saw fulfilled. And yet he still got up and went and blessed. He was truly an obedient and God-loving man of faith. Now some of you may have switched off already. Because you think, well, I'll never live up to that. Abraham was just this character in the, in the Bible stories that we read as children. You know, the one with the tents and the camels and the wife who laughed, always counting the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the, on the ground. But no, I believe that Abraham was a very real person. And to know that, we just have to look back at the end of chapter 12, the second half of chapter 12, the bit we didn't cover very much last week. You see, Abraham really messed up. The famine drove him out of the promised land where God was supposed to be leading him. He was afraid of the Egyptians. He chose to lie about his wife and say that she was his sister. He put her at risk. He allowed her to be taken by Pharaoh. He became rich from this unholy alliance with Pharaoh. And he did nothing to help Sarai until his dirty secret was discovered. He also, in a way, picked up a maidservant called Hagar, an Egyptian, and of course, stored up trouble for himself later on. So is there any wonder that here at the beginning of chapter 13, Abraham and his family make their way back to the promised land of Canaan, and they're not saying very much. And Abraham's tail appears to be very definitely between his legs. And it's often like that with us, isn't it? Perhaps you've led a really good small group, or you've talked to your neighbor about Jesus, And so often you've just done something good for the Lord and you're feeling good about that and then immediately you're into temptation and you're falling back into sin again. Our spiritual rugs are pulled out from underneath our feet before we even get them down on the floor sometimes. And for some of us, some of us, that's where we stay. We stay feeling useless. We stay feeling worn out by the battle between our desire to please God and our flesh which wants to do something different. So Abraham, he, had a, he, he obeyed God, he listened to the promises, he trusted them, but then he really messed up. But he returned to Canaan with his tail between his legs, but that's not where he stayed. Take a look down at verse 3. It's from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier. Perhaps you remember in chapter 12, he'd stopped there on the way down through Canaan. He settled in the hills between Ai and Bethel for a while. And there, he, where he had first built his altar. And it's there where Abraham called on the name of the Lord. So after his failure down in Egypt, where, by the way, he had never made an altar, so apparently he had never thought about God very much, he found his way back to Bethel, where he had made his first commitment to the Lord, to trust his promises. And in chapter 13, he built another altar to the Lord, 
and he made a fresh start with God by calling on the name of the Lord. So what do you think? Do you think that God turns his back on people who mess up? Do you think that God is horrified to discover what his people are capable of doing? Like the older, older brother in the parable of the lost son in Luke's Gospel, do you expect the father to turn his back on the younger son who had insulted him, taken his money, wasted the inheritance on sexual immorality? And do you expect the father to condemn him to live the rest of his life as a servant or a slave, or worse, as the man who has to feed the pigs on the farm? No. The lesson of this episode in Abraham's life is that by walking the path of faith with a heart that says, sorry, no failure, no failure ever need to be final. God never gives up on his chosen people. God is never disappointed with us. God is never disappointed with us. Why? Because he never had any hopes on us in the first place. Because he knows us. He knows every last bit of anger, every last bit of greed, fear, lust and jealousy in us. And yet he still loves us and he wants to use us in his service and for his kingdom. Just look here at the way God deals with Abraham. You see, he restores him as Abraham calls on the name of the Lord in verse 4. He is forgiven. But again, nobody promises that a life of faith is going to be easy. And here, Abraham is thrown immediately back into one of those testing times again in verse 5, when his herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot get into an argument. You see, he's just come out of one family crisis between husband and wife, and here he is straight back into another family crisis, this time an argument between himself, as the uncle, and his nephew Lot. And it was caused by their wealth, their new wealth, and their many possessions, in this case, their cattle and their sheep. See, even heroes of the faith are never, as I said, promised an easy life. So here's the test for Abraham. You see, he could have said, well, God promised this land to me. To me, not you. And in any case, I'm your uncle. I'm the senior person here. So you need to take your animals and go off and find somewhere else to live. This hill's not big enough for the two of us. But he doesn't, does he? Look down at verses 8 and 9. He said to Lot, You decide. You choose. I'll take whatever land you leave to me. I'll go where you don't want to go. Now that was a truly generous thing to do, because good pasture, uh, without good pasture, the wealth of Abraham wasn't going to last very long. And the pasture of the plains was much better than the pasture of the hills. And yet Abraham gave Lot the choice. Now, what made him able to do that? What made him able to do that? Well, simply that Abraham walked the path of faith and trusted in God. He knew that he'd been chosen. He knew that he'd been promised the land. He knew that he'd been promised that he would be blessed and that he, in turn, would be a blessing to others. He took God at his word. He took God to be glorious. He took God to be great. He took God to be good. He took God to be true and full of grace. See, God wasn't going to let him down. Even if Lot chose the best land to pastor his cattle and left nothing to Abraham, God would take care of Abraham. And see how God responds to Abraham's faith. It's with sheer delight. Verse 14, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, 
Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south in east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. He reminds him of the promise. He reminds him of the promise. He makes it even bigger. Instead of this land that we saw in chapter 12, it's become all that he can see. And it's given to him forever. So just experience for a moment the delight that God has in this repentant sinner called Abraham. And broken sinners, God can delight in you too. God can delight in you too. Abraham walked the path of faith. In contrast, let's uh, look at Lot. Now let me remind you, Lot is also a righteous man. He wants to follow God and do the right thing. He too has been blessed through his travels with Abraham and has become a wealthy man with many flocks and herds and tents, verse 5. But when it comes to Lot's big decision in life, in verse 10, Lot looked and he chose the path of compromise. In effect, he chose the new job over spending time with the family. He saw the fertile plain of the Jordan, which was so like Egypt, which he had just left. And he looked back and he thought, that was good. That looks good. That looks best. I will choose that. And the land he chose, the Bible says, looked exactly like the Garden of Eden. But unlike this Eden, unlike Eden, this garden was inhabited by evil men. Verse 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So let's just see how this path of compromise works out for Lot. Well, stage one, he looked in verse 10. He remembered the fertility of Egypt and he thought that down there looks the best place to be without sparing even a thought for the promises of God. Stage two, Now, remember that Lot was a righteous man, so he he wasn't actually going to go and live in their cities where they were evil, so he pitched his tent out in the fields, verse 12. Perhaps he could even evangelise those people as they came out to work in their fields, he thought to himself. Stage 3. If you fast forward to chapter 14 and verse 12, we see that Lot is now actually living in Sodom among those evil men. Maybe the schools were better. And it's more convenient for the shops. Stage four. Stage four. We fast forward a little bit more and we discover in chapter 19 and verse 1 that when the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. What does that mean? Well, basically it means that he became the leader within the city. See, the gateway was a place where all the legal and judicial transactions of the city were carried out in one of those ancient Middle Eastern cities. So there was Lot, a righteous man, in a position of authority, within a city inhabited by wicked men who had sinned greatly against the Lord. They might say, that's fantastic. We need good people like Lot to get involved in the rough and tumble of politics in the real world. And yet the reality is that Lot was horribly compromised by his position. See, as we see, as, as, we, as we shall see as the story progresses over the coming weeks, Lot was unable to prevent his daughters from marrying Sodomite men. When trouble came, he gave his remaining unmarried daughters over for the pleasure of the men of the city. 
And even so, when the city was destroyed, his wife could hardly bear to leave Solomon behind. She looked behind her and she became, came to a particularly unsavory and yet salty end. And yet Lot remained a righteous man. According to 2 Peter 2, he hated what he saw as he lived among the people of Sodom day by day. But in reality, his life as a believer was hopelessly compromised by the position he was in. Do you ever feel in that situation? I know I do. Lot is a righteous man. He never loses his salvation. But nor is he ever included in any of the lists in the New Testament of the heroes of the faith. He's not there in Romans and Hebrews. Because he desired the fertile plains rather than trusting in the promises of God. He chose to live near wickedness and then compromised himself by moving into the city and becoming a leader among them. Lot himself remained righteous, but the path to compromise was at the cost of his godly service and at the cost of his family too. And it all started because he had a different perspective on God compared to Abraham. You see, our problem as human beings is our hearts. They are the source of all our human behavior and emotions. Proverbs 27 says, As water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. And in Hebrews 4, uh, verse 13, the writer speaks about the word of God tackling the thoughts and what the NIV calls attitudes, but other versions say intentions or desires of our hearts. So the, we need to tackle the thoughts and desires of our hearts. So first, just think about our thoughts or beliefs. Behind every sin is a lie. In Lot's case, it was a lie that he had to take care of himself, that God would either be too disinterested or too occupied or simply not care enough about him to look after Lot and his family. In my case, I think I sometimes believe that God has given up on me, that I'm too imperfect to be useful and that God isn't really interested in sorting me out. But I'm, what I'm learning, and I think other people are too, is that God disciplines the children that he loves. He never gives up on his sinful children. His purpose is always to make us more like Christ. And he'll keep on doing that through our lives, no matter how painful we happen to find the discipline at the time. He will go on disciplining us and making us more like Christ if we let him. Secondly, we need to tackle our desires or our intentions. Sin arises because we desire something more than God. Lot was a wealthy man. He had flocks and herds and tents. He had lots of tents. But he didn't have the silver and gold that Abraham had. So perhaps when he looked out over the fertile plains of Sodom, he thought, that's where I'll make my silver and gold. That will be the icing on the cake of what I've already got. You see, the path of compromise could equally have been called the path of idolatry. Lot put silver and gold before his love for God. And perhaps when you are tempted with the desire to be well-known or respected by the world, or tempted to seek comfort in owning a nice house, or, or perhaps in viewing material that you shouldn't see, or some other kind of self-indulgence, as I have been tempted sometimes. 
We are simply putting other things before our love for God. So overcoming sin begins by reversing this process. We have to challenge the lies and we have to desire God more than other things. In this book, which I recommend to you, as usual, it's not on the uh, bookstore, but you can order it through them. Uh, Tim Chester, You Can Change. Tim Chester, You Can Change. Tim says, we all need to become preachers. And we need to preach to our hearts. We need to preach to our hearts that God is glorious, God is great, God is good, and God is gracious. You see, when Abraham looked across the land, he remembered the promise and he preached to himself, God cannot lie. He's got to complete his promise. You see, he will give me the land for his own glory's sake. And when he looked at the Canaanites who were already living in the land, he preached to himself, God is great. He can do this. And when faced with being driven into the hills by Lot's decision, he preached to himself, God is good. He will take care of me and my family and my herds and my flocks. And when he looked back and he remembered his sin in Egypt, he preached to himself, God is gracious. His love has already overcome and I am forgiven. Abraham overcame his sin by faith. And listen to this, so can we. We don't have to be like Lot, believers, but hopefully, hopelessly compromised by our thoughts and desires. We can overcome our sin by faith. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you uh, this morning, Each one of us who is a true believer wants to be like Abraham. We want to live that life of faith and follow the path of faith. And yet sometimes we just get knocked down by the hopelessness of our own sin and desires and the idolatry in our hearts. Lord, we thank you and praise you that we can be forgiven, that nothing is final in you, that you love us more than we can ever possibly imagine and you offer your forgiveness to each one of us as we come to you in faith in the name of Christ.